This afternoon, um, our first speaker to uh, kick us off for the afternoon session after lunch joins us from Canberra. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Zoe Rose. Okay, so I want to say hello to everybody and a special big hello to everyone who is tuning in from home. I hope you're really enjoying all the presentations today as much as I am. So today we are here to learn about the lost history of creative thinking methodologies. Ooh, fun times. All right, so let's start with something that isn't lost. We all know this, it's the double diamond, right? So we've got our four classic phases and we've got our diverge, converge, diverge, converge, cheeky little how might we statement in the middle there, yep, all nine stuff. And we know design thinking. So this is completely different though, right? Because it's five stages, no diverge converge, bunch of hexagons. <laughs> Why are they hexagons? This drives me absolutely nuts. Anyhow, so these are pretty simple models, uh, which is really great for me because I'm actually a trainer and trainers really love nice, simple models. Uh, my name is Zoe Rose. I actually run my own training company. I was a teacher before I was a designer. And these days I teach people mostly, but not exclusively in the public service, about usability and accessibility, which is usability for disabled people. I'm also disabled myself. Now, as many of you will know, the core skill set of a trainer is not being a subject matter expert. It's the ability to break down big fields of knowledge into something that people can actually understand and retain. Now, critically, a good trainer knows that you really don't want to overstuff a presentation, right? If you've only got 25 minutes, as I have, the best advice is to keep it simple, two or three big ideas, tops, nothing too complex. We are not going to do that today. <laughs> this is going to be really dense. About 10 minutes from now, some people are going to be thinking, oh my God, she has over-researched this, and you will be right, because part of the reason for doing this presentation is I'm trying to fend off a PhD in this topic. So yes, a lot of research has happened. You've been warned. OK. Right. So uh, there's an old joke in a book that uh, many of you will have read called Infinite Jest. And there's these uh, two young fish hanging out in the pond and an old fish swims by and he says, morning boys, how's the water? And when he's gone, one of the young fish turns to the other young fish and goes, what the hell is water? Okay, it's a joke about culture. The thing that unites those models that we just looked at, double diamond design thinking, how might we questions, is that they are all presented and we present them as existing outside of context, outside of culture and outside of history. So, okay, let's have a look at this water. The very idea that a process can be decontextualized is contextual. The idea that a process exists outside history is shaped by history. Assuming that a method can be a cultural is itself a cultural assumption. And we're going to start there. We're going to start in history. We're going to start in shallow waters, right? We're just going to dip our toe. 
Back to this guy. So the British Design Council released the double diamond in 2005. There's a historical note on the website. It's a bit thin. It says, of course, kite-shaped design process models have been referenced as far back as the 1960s. Have, ha, have they? Uh, the director of design from when the double diamond was invented, uh, he said something interesting. He said, an engineer at IDEO talked to me about the product development process as being like the classic diamond-shaped kite with a tail composed of progressively smaller diamonds. That's interesting because it tells us that IDEO had an influence over the development of the double diamond. IDEO, of course, are the design consultancy that came up with this in about 2001. The hexagons are their fault. This is the standard design thinking model. Now, if you look at their account of their history, it's a very vibe-oriented. Like, there's like, oh, something, something, Victor Pakanak, and then it doesn't say anything else. So there's not much there. All right, that's the immediate history. Going to shift gears now. We're going to go to culture. I want to introduce you to one way of looking at the spectrum of culture, which is the low-context culture to high-context culture spectrum. Now, anthropologists and sociologists in the audience will be screaming inside their hearts right now at the oversimplification of this model, but uh, we're going to do it anyhow, and I'll tell you why in a second. Right, so high-context cultures tend to have these attributes. They tend to be more group-oriented, place value on relationships, use more indirect communication styles, and favor collaboration. On the other hand, our low-context cultures uh, tend to have these attributes. They tend to be more individualistic, value independence, direct communication styles, so get to the point, and a uh, bit of competition. Okay. Just want to point out, this is a very low context way of presenting culture. We'll just acknowledge that. So we've got uh, our models from the US and the UK. These are pretty low context places. And just so you know, the vertical axis doesn't mean anything. I just lifted this out of Erin Meyer's book, The Cultural Map, where she's got more examples. So America is not collectivist at all. America is super individualistic. This is the Hofstetter culture complex, uh, compass, also problematic, but interesting. And according to this model, American individualism scores a whopping 91 out of 100, real high. And before anyone feels particularly cocky, this is how <laughs> Australia goes in at 90 out of 100. So, bit of culture, swinging back to history. Our story actually starts in a specific place and a specific time. It starts not just in America, but in America in the 1950s and in a specific cultural context, which is rich, white, well-educated American men. Men who are really interested in creativity. Right, let's do some history. Uh, it is pretty rare that a field of human knowledge literally starts in a place at a time on a date. However, in this case, it kind of happened. The field was creativity research, and the event was J.P. Guilford's address to the American Psychological Society in 1950. Now, in his address, Guilford says, the neglect of this subject by psychologists is appalling, and he's right. 
No one is researching this. Later in the speech, he says the psychologist's problem is that of creative personality. He says that a lot, kind of individualistic, yeah? But then he says another really weird thing. He says uh, that examination of the content of intelligence tests reveals very little that is of an obviously creative nature. Well, why would they? Why, why is he talking about IQ tests? All right, context time. So, the IQ test was invented in France in 1905. It was only for one purpose, and that was identifying kids at risk of falling behind in school. However, by World War I, 1.7 million American soldiers are going to take it, and they're going to take it because the war machine is chewing through people so fast, they need a quick, effective way to identify people for the officer class. Now, something really strange is going to happen after this. The IQ test is going to fail in every way, but the thing that's weird is that the military is actually going to admit to it. They're going to say, yeah, this did absolutely nothing apart from tell us who was black and who was a recent immigrant and didn't speak English very well. Nothing else at all. Now, Guilford knows this at the time that he is working in the Air Force uh, in World War II. He's got the same goal that they had uh, when they were doing the IQ test. He wants to identify people who are fit for leadership and command and who are going to make really good pilots. But he reckons it's going to be about creativity. Okay. So, uh, if you want to know more about the wheelchair to warfare pipeline, which is very established in disability circles, or the fascinating history of the multiple choice test, ask me. So when he's working with those pilots, Guilford worked out a really famous creativity test. Who knows this? Yeah, I got some nods. All right, cool. So, the test is this. You give someone a standard object, and you see how many uses they can come up with for that object to make it measurable, okay? So what Guilford is looking for is what he calls intelligence of the kind that goes off in different directions. He is looking for something that he gave a name. He called it divergent thinking. Yeah, okay. So which is the opposite of what? Convergent thinking. The ability to find a single correct answer, which is what is being measured by the IQ test. So we see it. By 1956, Guilford has introduced the structure of intellect model to personality research. You can see, here it is, and you can see up the top, it's got convergent and divergent thinking incorporated into the model of personality. So what this tells us is the past that diverge, converge came to us as designers was not through design. It was a scientific path, and more specifically, it was personality research, which is to say the study of the individual. Okay, so our creative problem-solving methods have individualistic roots. Cool. Next guy. Oh, I love this guy. God, I love this guy. This is Alex Osborne, and he's as cool as he seems. This is the guy who invented... I love all these people. Uh, this is the guy who invented brainstorming. So he's kind of like a, he's an ad executive, so he's kind of like a cross between a madman guy and Tim Ferriss. He's very fun. So what actually is brainstorming? Well, everybody knows the bit where you get a group of people together in a room and you generate as many ideas as openly as possible. It's very naff. We don't do that. Um, 
Osborne says, however, that that's actually only step one of three. Next, you've got to pause. And after you've had a pause, then you winnow the ideas down to the good ones. So you use divergent thinking in your brainstorming session, but then you use convergent thinking to come up with your solutions. Diverge, converge, diamond. You're seeing it, right? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so the brainstorming fad actually starts with Osborne's book, Applied Imagination, 1953. It's basically an airport business book. It's very fun, gushy, name-droppy kind of a read. Yes, I have read the whole thing. So <laughs> now, some people might have noticed something a bit weird here. Because we've got this all-American capitalist madman guy, and he's come up with this process which is actually really collaborative, right? Uh, brainstorming is a group process, it's a non-judgmental group process. You've got to ask ideas in the generation phase, but they have to be non-judgmental ideas, like by definition. It's, it's not very American, right? Uh, but you'll be glad to know that Osborne does explain this. He goes out of his way in the book to explain that, like, even though it looks collaborative, the, the group session is just because, like, it's driving competition between people, and that's, that's what's the powering bit. It's definitely competitive. Woo! America! Yeah! Okay. <laughs> so, speaking of America, when I proposed this talk, I had an idea that the creative problem-solving methodologies that we're discussing were reactionary. And as they all blossomed in America during the Cold War, I thought they were specifically being reactionary against communism. So I started researching this, expecting that that boring thing would happen where you have a really cool hypothesis and you go looking for facts and it turns out you're just completely wrong. And that is not what happened. I was absolutely right. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from the very first example that Osborne gives in the first edition of his book. So he says, if you were Secretary of State and about to go to Moscow, wouldn't you like to have a highly intelligent group of strategists do nothing but think up a hundred possible moves that you might make while you were there? And then he says, you're going to winnow the ideas down. And then if only one worthwhile suggestion came out of a whole year's work by such a group, it would cost but a penny compared to the cost of one atom bomb. And I love that because like, it's got the Cold War and the capitalism in one sentence, like, spot on. Okay, who knows what this is? <gasps> Steve, it's Sputnik. This is Sputnik, okay. So this talk is about lost history. Uh, Part of history that isn't so much lost as forgotten is that for most of the space race, the USSR was winning by miles. Here's a timeline. Sputnik is 1957. Laika, first space dog, was also 1957. Belka and Strelka, the first dogs to come back to Earth, 1960. Yuri Gagarin, the toughest man who ever lived, first person in space, 61. Alexei Leonov, first spacewalk, 1965. And it's not until 1969 that the USA even gets a single run on the board. They are being smashed. Ask me, by the way, about the symbolic connection uh, between uh, enclosed spaceships and the enclosed economy of the kind that they were trying to run in the USSR. It's pretty cool. All right, so. 
This is a real concern in America. I found this in an article from Guildford, 1959, on the reasons for the boom in individualistic creativity research. It says, we are in a mortal struggle for the survival of our way of life in the world. Later, we encountered challenges on all intellectual fronts, scientific and cultural, as well as economic and personal. This is a real threat for him. Later, we've got in Osborne, uh, Russia's ideas have been hot enough to drive our country back on the European front, step by step. He's taking this very seriously, which leads us to be able to say that our creative problem-solving methods have ideological roots. Sure, at the surface level, fine, they're for solving problems, but they're also for proving that the individualistic capitalist approach is just better than the collectivist communist approach. Now, all right, so it's reasonable at this point to ask, is there even such a thing as a collectivist design methodology? What would that even look like, right? Is it Bauhaus? Is that what we're going to do? So, Genrik Altschuler is our guy. I say he's the other patent clerk genius, the first one being Einstein. Uh, Genrik was born in Uzbekistan. He lived most of his life in Azerbaijan, and he spent 1950 to 1954 in a labor camp. His first career was as a patent clerk, and he realized that there were patents in the patents that came across his desk. And I have been terrified of saying patents in the patents ever since I wrote this. It's very <laughs> difficult. So where our beloved Guilford started with analyzing creativity in people, Altshuler, at almost exactly the same time, started by analysing creativity in inventions, thousands of them. Okay, are you ready for the next bit? Because this is, this is going to be a real trip, all right? Okay. So, based on what he found in the patents, he proposed that there were 40 categories that all inventions fall into, and they're all on this slide, okay? His idea was that if you can work out what category your problem is in, you can use the category to find the solution. This system is called TRIZ, T-R-I-Z in English. We're not going to do TRIZ, we're just using this as an example of alternatives. If we take, for example, category one, that's divisional segmentation. An example might be replacing a delivery van with a car and a trailer or in project management, just breaking a project into smaller, more manageable pieces. Trees are still around, it doesn't get much credit. There's a lot of it in things like uh, Six Sigma. Okay. All right, ask me how this might be connected to David Bowie. Oh, yeah. oh I've got more. Okay, so, step back. We've already mentioned that Osborne's brainstorming has three steps, not one. Uh, let's have a look at one of his complaints about the misuse of brainstorming, which started the minute the brainstorming did. So he says, too many have erroneously regarded group brainstorming as a complete problem-solving process, whereas it is only one of several phases of idea finding, and idea finding is only one of several phases of creative problem-solving. What's he going on about? Our last person, Sidney Pons, the Invisible Man. Oh, Pons. All right, Osborne is a businessman. Pons, like Guilford, is an academic. He is also really hard to find information about outside of his books, um, which is a bit of a hassle because some of the books are impossible to find, which is the downside of investigating something that you already knew was a lost history when you started. Now, I can't get this book 
anywhere, I can tell you that if you've ever encountered a how might we question, the first one we have evidence of is in this book, which was written by Pons in 1967, not IDO. Uh, you can ask me for the evidence of that as well. So Osborne dies in 1966, but before he dies, he works with Pons on the other phrases of, phases of creative problem solving. Okay? Unfortunately, Pons does not have the marketing genius that Osborne has, so he's an academic. So Osborne being dead at this stage, uh, the Osborne-Pons creative solving method never really gets super famous. It's kind of hard to find. I can't track down the original one very well, but it's got to be 1966 or thereabouts. Are we ready? Do you want to see it? Yep, cool. Okay, here it is. <gasps> I love the gasps. Magic. Let's have a look. What have we got? We start with problem sensitivity, which is a character attribute identified by Guilford, because he's still here. We move on to Messer objective, and then we have these five diverge, converge, uh, uh, process elements. Fact finding, problem finding, idea finding, solutions finding, acceptance finding. Action, new challenge, and a beautifully placed etc. Okay. okay. All right. Remember this? Yeah? <gasps> Same shape. Look at that. Okay. Remember this? Yeah? Hey, the hexagon's taking them out. <gasps> Look at that. So we find that those five stages of the design thinking process have pretty much direct analogies in the Osborne palms. Empathize to fact finding, define to problem finding, ideate to idea finding, prototype to solution finding, and test to acceptance finding. It's one to one. So, there. So at the beginning, do you remember how our design council person said, of course, Kite-shaped design process models have been referenced as far back as the 1960s. There you go. There you have it. The double diamond and the IDEO design thinking process are very different, but they have the same root. And it is the Osborne-Pans creative solving process, which draws from Osborne's brainstorming process, which draws from Guilford's diverge-converge model of creativity. Right. I'll be honest with you, I feel like that's a pretty solid mic drop moment. Um, <laughs> we could stop there, right? Everyone here would go home happy, but, well, I hope so. Or, uh, but we're not going to do that. We're going to go a little bit further, just a little bit, because as I was researching this talk, I stumbled on this throwaway line somewhere that suggested that Osborne maybe got the idea from somewhere else. And we already noted. Do you remember how we noted how weird it was that a hyper-capitalist like Osborne would come up with an inherently collectivist, collaborative process which relies on withholding judgment? Weird, right? Yeah? Well, got me hunting. Uh, the hunt took me to the 1963 edition of Applied Imagination. I'm going to read it to you. It says, this kind of conference, brainstorming, is not entirely new. A similar procedure is known to have been used in India for more than 400 years as part of the technique Hindu teachers of, of Hindu teachers working with religious groups. The Indian name for this method is Prayabhashana. Pray means outside yourself, and Bhashana means question. Interesting. Makes sense 
Indian cultures are pretty high context cultures. If you were going to find this approach anywhere, it would make sense to find it there. So I got out my Google and I started Googling Pribashana. I didn't find a damn thing. But fortunately, I know a designer in Mumbai called Priyanka. I asked her, she said, I think this might be Sanskrit. Now, Sanskrit is an ancient language, but it's readable-ish for modern day Hindi speakers. Uh, interesting. As it happens, I listened to a podcast about the design industry in India. So I found the host on Twitter, a guy called Kowal Oberoi. And he, and I told him what Pranka said, and he said, ooh, yeah, I think that might mean like lateral thinking or lateral questioning, but he wasn't entirely sure. So he put me onto this guy he knew called Abhishek, and Abhishek is a lecturer in Indic languages, and he saw the words Pribhashana, and he said, in my opinion, that word is Sanskrit Pariprashna, which is in... Yes, someone knows. Okay, so which is uh, in inquiry, uh, interrogation, or question. He referred to me a book. The book was about religion. Back to Osborne, like he was saying, interesting. But in my culture, we don't talk religion with professional peers, and these are my professional peers, so I kind of cut the cord at that stage. But then I remember that I actually have a friend who was raised in the Hare Krishnas. So I asked her, and she said... But I have heard it used in the context of the process of inquiry between a disciple and a guru in that it is the duty of a disciple not to blindly accept but to make respectful inquiries not so as to challenge but as to understand. Interesting. And she asked if I wanted her to ask her friend who studies the Vedas full time. And I said, yeah, I definitely do. That friend's name is Rob. Rob went out, he checked the source text for me, and based on what Rob found, I now believe that the roots of brainstorming, and therefore so many of our design processes today, are not in the 1950s America at all. They come from the Bhagavad Gita, right? Which is therefore about 1,200 years old. So I could have skipped... Uh, the entire trajectory of that last bit by saying it turns out. Could have done that. Uh, I could have decontextualized the whole thing. I could have removed Priyanka and Kowal and Abhishek and my friend and Rob. I could have appropriated their knowledge without even blinking and you wouldn't have blinked either because most of us in this room are low, context cult low cultural context people and that is what we do. But the context matters. I didn't get to this in insight through divergent thinking. I got to it through divergent questioning. By asking questions that build on and build relationships, and that is a process that our process models are really squeamish about. Now, I said at the beginning of this talk that a good talk should have like two or three big, simple ideas, and I also said I wasn't going to do that, and this is why. Because the path from our methods to ancient scripture is complex. The complexity of the path is what reveals to us that our methods are complex, even when the surface level looks simple. These models cannot exist without context. And when we act as though our work is divorced from cultural, historical, 
and personal perspective, we are claiming power that we do not, should not, and cannot have. I'm actually going to give the last words of this to someone who's not a designer. Uh, not an expert in the things that we in this room claim to be expert in. That's Rob, uh, who's just a man who was willing to give an answer in good faith to a question asked in good faith. And he said, in the context of design, I would say that Pariprashna implies the ability to cast aside one's ingrained biases, have an open mind to explore, and a desire to discover the best. It suggests that how we see is perhaps more important than what we see. Sincere inquiry requires a passion for discovery and an authenticity in how we embrace inquiry itself. Thank you.